Fentanyl has killed an unprecedented number of people in the United States again in 2023, and any hope that the fentanyl epidemic would fade along with the COVID pandemic has not panned out. Here's Dr. Nora Volkov, head of the National Institute on Drug Research, talking with NPR in October about the wave of drug deaths hitting families. It continues to go up, and I had been hoping that after we are emerging from the COVID pandemic, we will start to see it go down. But it's right. Volkov is one of the nation's top experts on addiction. She says it's time for policymakers to try new tactics, new experimental approaches to save lives. We're not in a stable situation. We're in an emergency situation. There are so many people dying. So I think that that's forced us to being more creative and to dare to do things that may allow for better outcomes. But so far, Washington's political leaders haven't been able to work out creative solutions to the crisis together. Consider this. Like the pandemic before it, the fentanyl crisis has divided Americans along political and cultural fault lines. Coming up, we'll talk through just how devastating the drug epidemic has gotten and some possible solutions. From NPR, I'm Juana Summers. It's Wednesday, December 27th. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Consider This from NPR. My colleague Asma Khalid spoke with three reporters about the ongoing drug crisis in the U.S. NPR's addiction correspondent Brian Mann, WBUR's Martha Biebinger, and KFF Health News' Aniri Patani. Asma takes it from here. Brian, let's start with you. The opioid epidemic has been raging for quite some time. Why is this moment so much deadlier? Yeah, 2023 really was different. We're seeing more than 112,000 people dying every year in the United States. We used to think it was a catastrophe that 60 to 70,000 Americans were dying every year from drug overdoses. Now it's a lot worse. And the street supply of drugs keeps getting more toxic, not just with fentanyl, but also now we're seeing other deadly chemicals like methamphetamines and xylazine all mixed together in these drug cocktails. Louise Vincent is an activist helping people with addiction in North Carolina. We've had an entire community swept away. I can't even think of all the people that I know that have died. I mean, so many people are dead. My own, my daughter died. Our mentors are dead. Hey, Asma, this is Anari. I just wanted to chime in because I think what Luis just said there, what we heard from her, is really reflecting what we're seeing in the statistics, too. I mean, overdoses are now the leading cause of death for people in America ages 18 to 45. And they're also one of the leading things killing pregnant women and women who've just given birth. So this is just an incredibly devastating moment. And I think we're hearing that from people. We're seeing it in the numbers, too. 
And Brian, I've got a follow-up question here. The the overdose death rate has been incredibly high now for years. So why are we not seeing solutions? You know, the Biden administration says they are attacking this problem with a lot more money and policy ideas. In 2023, for example, they allowed a drug called naloxone that reverses opioid overdoses to be sold more easily over the counter in pharmacies. But the bottom line, and and every drug policy expert I talk to agrees on this, the tools we've used in the past to fight drug epidemics just aren't working. You know, the vast majority of dollars in the U.S. spent on addiction goes to criminal justice. That's police and prisons and things like border security, and also to abstinence-based recovery care that often requires people stop using drugs before they get help. And what we're seeing is the data showing all those tools just didn't stop the spread of these more dangerous drugs, and they haven't stopped the overdose rate from climbing and climbing. Brian, this is Martha. I'm going to jump in on that with another frustration. And that's that even as the death rates are this high, we're seeing some mainstream medical providers who aren't really helping. There are medications and treatments for addiction. You might have heard of drugs like buprenorphine or methadone, but... There's a lot of stigma and a lack of training, and so many doctors don't use them. They, they won't prescribe them to their patients, or they, they just don't take people in addiction as patients. Mm. Martha, sticking with you, you know, given that the tools that we've been talking about for dealing with addiction have not worked, people are turning to a strategy that's been used for years in other countries called harm reduction. Can you explain to us what that is? Sure. So harm reduction is about keeping people alive while they use drugs. And Asma, that might mean handing out naloxone and needles or pipes so that people don't share equipment and spread diseases. Some harm reductions will even monitor drug use to prevent a fatal overdose. But harm reduction is also an attitude shift. And this is a really important part. It's about treating people who use substances with respect and kindness, not shaming and blaming them. Here's one harm reduction worker, Renee, describing her work. The stuff is just the carrot that I dangle before the horse. I'm wanting to make a connection with you. So, Asma, that connection that Renee and others talk about is meant to help restore dignity and self-respect and be a path to recovery. Now, some of what Renee and others do to keep people alive, like supervising drug use, is illegal, So we're not using her full name, and we have altered her voice. Harm reduction is widely accepted in Canada, also in Europe. It is still controversial, though, here in the United States. And the backlash against it does appear to be growing in some corners. And and why is that? So, Asma, in short, it's seen as enabling drug use. Because opponents see giving someone a needle or showing compassion, they see that as condoning drug use or condoning bad behavior. And they argue that the focus should be on sending or forcing people into treatment if needed. Now, I want to be clear, harm reduction is no magic fix. Overdoses and deaths are still high in states with lots of these programs, including Massachusetts, where I live. So there's a tug of war between the punishing or tough love approach and the softer, more compassionate model of harm reduction that's happening daily as we see overdose deaths rise. And the political fight over how to deal with people actively using drugs is is really accelerating and did accelerate in 2023 in Oregon, where voters uh, approved a measure to decriminalize drug use a few years ago. 
it's still illegal to deal drugs there, but it's been legal to use small amounts of drugs. There's now a, a big fight to recriminalize uh, a lot of, of active drug use that's uh, that's playing out right now. Yes, Brian, I think one of the lessons there is that addiction is a very complex disease and that if we're trying to support people in addiction without punishing them, we have to provide supports like housing and mental health care. Aneri, I want to bring you into the conversation you know, we have heard news that drug companies have agreed to pay more than $50 billion in compensation for their role in spurring the opioid crisis. Is that money helping? What is that money going towards? So it really differs depending on which state you look at. And honestly, it's too soon to tell if it's helping across the country. But you're seeing a lot of the same issues play out that Martha and Brian were just talking about. So some states, uh, even despite the urgency with people dying every day, some states haven't touched their settlement funds yet. Other places are looking at investing in naloxone or harm reduction techniques like Martha was talking about. And then you have places that are at the other end saying, we need to give this money to law enforcement. So they've bought patrol cars, roadside cameras, body scanners for their jails. The thing is, there's just not a lot of evidence that those sorts of investments will prevent overdoses or save lives. And a lot of families are upset. So Carrie Spears in Ohio is one of them. She lost her 23-year-old nephew, Tanner, to a fentanyl overdose two years ago. Her small town has spent most of its settlement cash on surveillance equipment and training for their officers and canines. And she's just not sure how that's going to save people like her nephew. Not that I don't support law enforcement or first responders, but what research did they look at that said, yeah, surveillance equipment and canine helps people get into recovery and sobriety. And what I'm hearing from my reporting is that just like in that town where Carrie lives, a lot of times decisions about the settlement money is not so much based on evidence, but on geography and politics of the place. Speaking of politics, I've got a final question for you all here. How is fentanyl, the fentanyl crisis, likely to play out as an issue in the 2024 election? Let me take that one, Asma. Public policy experts I talk to really worry that this is going to get ugly politically with a lot of politicians really weaponizing the fentanyl issue. There's a lot of disinformation out there about this topic and ideas that research suggests don't actually help save lives. A lot of Promises are being made, for example, to stop fentanyl smuggling into the U.S., but no one, Democrats or Republicans, have plans that anybody thinks would actually do that. Real solutions to this crisis are likely going to be a lot more complex, involving things like reforming health care and expanding access to housing and mental health care. And, you know, trying to do that kind of work in 2024 in America's polarized political culture Everyone I'm talking to says it's going to be really tough, especially if these deaths keep rising. That was my colleague Asma Khalid speaking with NPR's addiction correspondent Brian Mann, WBUR's Martha Biebinger, and KFF Health News' Aniri Batani. It's Consider This from NPR. I'm Juana Summers. NPR Plus is a new way to support public media and get more from your favorite NPR podcasts like Fresh Air. Sometimes I'll actually preface the question with, if it makes you too uncomfortable to talk about, if it's too personal, just tell me. Here's the question. For behind-the-scenes content, bonus episodes, and more, sign up at plus.npr.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. 
Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen.